Yes, indeed. We are well over halfway through this series. There's only one more um, after today. Uh, last week, Adam took us through uh, the flood narrative. Uh, essentially, just to recap, the flood narrative, the flood story is all about um, how human disorder became so great that God just has to hit the reset button. Um, so the primordial chaos is unleashed, but then it is quickly banished again to the margins. And then there's this replay of the days of forming and filling, like a restatement of creation. Uh, in Genesis 9, for example, there's even a restatement of God's instruction uh, to humans to be fruitful and, in, and increase in number. Um, and God also makes it very clear that humans are still very much made in the image of God. And then, most importantly, God makes a covenant with Noah and his sons. But then, in a bit of an ominous moment, Noah plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and there's a bit of a to-do involving the sons. Uh, all this to say, uh, it looks like the potential for human disorder is still very much present. And now this week, well, yes, when Adam and I were sorting each week's we would cover in this Genesis series, I thought this would be a nice easy one. Genesis 10 and 11, it's basically just the Tower of Babel, right? Wrong. Uh, have you read these chapters? They're mostly long names of fathers and their sons. Now, look, I, I like genealogies as much as the next person. Um, I have an account on Ancestry.com, and I've spent quite a bit of time working my way back up my family tree. I mean, it's, it's interesting to know where we come from, right? Um, if you're interested, Chenoweth is a Cornish name, and so ancestors go back to Cornwall. Um, and as I'm going through Ancestry.com, working my way up the generations, there's basically a point at which two generations of my ancestors right across the tree came out from England or Scotland or Cornwall um, and and so they they have the, the the whole two rows of people who were born in England or somewhere died in Australia two generations so families were coming out at that time and I was just like struck it was just right across the whole tree so no comics in my generations as far as as far as I know as far as I know and look, there's this fairly bizarre... There we go. There we go. 10 and 11. Now look, if you've done any work on a family tree, you know it can actually be extremely complicated. So the writer of uh, Genesis 10 um, had to make some selection and presentation order decisions. And look, we know where the start is. It's Noah and his sons. And interestingly, we who have read a little bit ahead know where this is heading. It's heading to Abraham. But between those two points, there's still uh, lots of twisty branches. Uh, so the, the semi-official name uh, for Genesis 10 is, is the Table of Nations. So let's jump in. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. That's how they start, 10 verse 1. So who would you expect to read about next? Shem, right? Because he's the name that's mentioned there first. Wrong. We get Japheth. Uh, I should have probably gone for that one before. And then we get... There we go. There's Japheth. Um, now, it's possible that Japheth was Noah's firstborn. 
apparently in uh, Genesis 10:21, which we'll get to, um, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. But then, just to make things more complicated, the NIV has a little footnote that says that Shem is the older brother of Japheth. So we just don't know. So whatever the outcome of that particular translation decision, it seems that the writer or the editor of Genesis likes to follow the less important lines. Um, so we, if you read the whole of this uh, book, um, Genesis, you, you'll see Cain comes first, then Ishmael comes first, and then Esau comes first. Um, these are the less important lines before then returning to the, the line that's mainly in focus, which would be in order, Seth, Isaac, and Jacob. So Noah's other sons, Japheth and Ham, they get their little lines traced into history before we return to Shem and the line of Abraham. Now Japheth's line has this interesting aside. From these, the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. Genesis 10.5. And then in verses 20 and 31, we see references to languages. Verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. But wait a sec languages but we haven't got to the tower of babel yet and we all know that that's where languages come on so what's going on here with this narrative order well it, interestingly it seems that the tower of babel incident is actually referred to towards the end of genesis 10. Uh, once we get to the line that will eventually lead to abraham the descendants of shem we read this two sons were born to eber one was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Yoktan. And so the name Peleg means division. It seems that this is referring to what happens after the Tower of Babel as everyone scatters when God gifts humanity with the different languages. Um, we don't jump straight to the Tower of Babel story immediately though because Yoktan's sons have to be mentioned. And then there's a couple of summary statements. But, but apart from these slightly out of place uh, references to languages, the narrative flow is pretty consistent. It's just that this table of nations has taken us just past the introduction of languages. And then when we get into Genesis 11, we get the story proper. So let's get into it. Um, I'm going to read uh, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, and as I read, note the, the, what's called a chiastic structure. It's like something working in towards the middle, and then it will work out again. Um, and the whole earth had one language and a common speech. And as they journeyed from the east, they found a place in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and let us fire them with fire. So they used bricks instead of stone, tar instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that the children of mankind had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, since as one people with the same language, for all this is what they begin to do, then nothing will be impossible for them in all that they plan to do. Come, let us go down, and there let us confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. For this reason, the name of the city is called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, can I pose what will probably be a bit of a controversial question? Did this event actually take place? This is not working. I'm not getting it to move through. Because it should have gone to the second, the next slide. That's the second half of the thing. Yeah. Um, yep, there we go. Uh, now, was there an actual Tower of Babel? Well, the, the, the details in this story fit with what we know um, of the ancient Babylonian region. And the tower in the story is almost certainly meant to be one of these, a ziggurat, a Babylonian pyramid-like structure. And we know that these were built in and around uh, Babylon out of kiln-fired bricks. They're on a floodplain. There's no stone for, for, I don't know, many, many, many miles. So if you want to build anything hard, you've got to make it yourself. Um, and if you've done mud bricks, you know that if you just make a brick out of mud, it's going to be okay. It's not going to last forever. So if you fire it in a kiln, it goes much harder. It's going to last and the harder they are, of course, the bigger you can build your buildings. Now, and some of these kiln, uh, sorry, these ziggurats were so well built, they have survived into the present day, much like the pyramids of Egypt, although they were built out of stone. Um, ha, so, you know, there's no problem with the, the thought of, you know, these uh, people building a, a big tower to heaven. But do I personally think that everyone alive on earth at that time was there speaking the same language and that God came down physically in some form and then gave everyone different languages? No, I don't. This is because I believe this passage is etiological. Etiological. Uh, the word is talking about the origin of things. Um, it's... Uh, it's an, this, this passage is an explanation for why things are the way they are now. And it's essentially based on their understanding, their, their worldview, their, their common sense. Uh, so the logic of the passage goes like this. We all know that people who live in the same family all speak the same language. It's true of us, right? We all speak the same language in our own families. Um, however when we look around, we see other people groups who clearly don't speak the same language as us. And yet, if they're all descended from Noah, how on earth did we all come to speak different languages? Well, God must have done it. And this makes complete sense from the perspective of someone living in the ancient Near East at this time, at the time that this text was being written down. 
but from, from our perspective, our global perspective, um, with all that we've come to learn about comparative and historical linguistics, such an explanation just isn't necessary. I mean, all languages change over time. And if two groups of people who speak the same language get separated geographically, then the languages each group speaks will change independently. At first, they might understand each other quite well, but then as time goes by, this mutual understanding lessens. Uh, take Dutch and Afrikaans as an example. When the Dutch settlers went to Africa, they spoke the same form of Dutch as the people who stayed in the Netherlands. However, after more than 200 years, the two languages are, while clearly related, relatively distinct from one another. You can sort of understand each other, but there's major differences. So we can trace languages back linguistically to show how languages are related to one another and how they have descended from common ancestors. Uh, essentially, languages have a family tree as well. You just simply can't say that, but here's a good one too. Um, again, you can't see the details, but it's basically a, a tree diagram of the Indo-European family of languages. And in this diagram, the size of those branch endings represents the relative number of speakers of that language. And, and you probably can't see it, but, but check out how Finnish and Hungarian have their own little tree, completely separate from the Indo-European uh, one, uh, because Finnish and Hungarian are just completely different to all of the other European languages. Look, so given this understanding of how languages work, a divine explanation as to how languages come about just isn't, isn't needed. It, all this to say that Genesis is an ancient book which reflects the worldview of that time. And, and look, I have to say, something similar is going on with their understanding of cosmology too. Adam's had this picture up a couple of times. Um, back to the to lesson, sorry, Genesis 1. It was also helpful during the, the flood narrative. And this understanding of cosmology, it's actually quite easy to see how someone living in the ancient Near Eastern world would arrive at a, a picture of the cosmos like this. All right? You've got to try and put yourself back into a nomadic goat herder in a desert, you know, just, just out in the middle of North Canaan or somewhere, right? Just try to picture that. Um, every morning you see the sun in, rise in the east and it sets in the west while you stay right where you are. And then every night the fixed stars wheel around like an enormous bowl. Uh, okay, so the planets complicate things, but the stars never change positions relative to one another. Surely this demonstrates that the sky is hard. And then the sun and the moon, they must be inside that hard sky. And then there's this rain that falls from the sky. So there must be water up there somewhere, presumably above the hard sky. And it comes through, like in some ways. And then, yes, of course, the ground undulates that we're looking out across our desert sort of terrain. Um, and as far as we can see, it's, it's relatively flat. I mean, especially if you talk to someone who, who's seen the Mediterranean Sea, 
which appears to just go on forever, flat as a pancake when there's no wind. Oh, and then you've heard from travellers who've come from the east of impenetrably high mountains covered in snow all year round. The Himalayas. Presumably that hard sky rests on these mountains. So let's just call them the pillars of the sky, etc., etc. So this cosmology, this understanding of, of how the world is, which we can see in the Old Testament, uh, demonstrates that these are ancient writings reflecting the worldview of that time. In fact, we get a glimpse of this cosmology in the turning point of this passage in verse 5. The author is definitely intending the irony of having God come down in order to see this puny tower. These people think they're doing something impressive, but on God's scale, it is hardly noticeable. All right, so what is this tower? What is this passage actually t teaching us? Uh, as I said earlier, the, this tower is almost certainly meant to be a ziggurat, one of these Babylonian pyramid-like structures. Well, we know from other ancient Near Eastern sources that the purpose of building a ziggurat was not so that the people could ascend to the heavens. After all, the heavens are, strictly speaking, the domain of the gods. No, apparently the, the ziggurat was supposed to make it easy for the gods to descend to earth, to then take up residence in a nearby temple. Um, the ziggurat was therefore an invitation to the gods. It was a stairway from heaven, not a stairway to heaven, to quote Led Zeppelin. And then, presumably, once the god had come down using the ziggurat as this like stepping stone, taken up residence in the temple, then this god would then bless the people who made it easy for him or her. So this is this historical background to the passage. But interestingly, the text that we have doesn't come out and say this explicitly. Uh, we can see this in verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and let us fire them with fire. So they used bricks instead of stone, tar instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So the reasons that they give, partly there's some sort of pride involved. The people want to make a name for themselves. But they also don't want to spread out and fill the earth. Now some people, myself included, when I wrote an essay on this in Bible college, thought that this fill the earth bit is, was the real, real problem. Um, you know, Genesis 1, 28 and, verses, and, and chapter 9 restates it, that God wanted people to multiply and fill the earth and I just assumed that fill the earth meant move out geographically but it, but it doesn't it's actually just talking simply about re reproducing numbers so multiply and fill the earth with with the numbers of humans not necessarily spread out specifically but it's interesting that the end result of this passage is that they are scattered so there's definitely sort of something going on there with the, the need to move out. 
And verse 9 then does say, from there Yahweh scattered them across the face of the whole earth. So those seem to be a couple of possible reasons for what's going on here. But we find out that the main problem is in verse 6. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God's response to the building of the Tower of Babel, it's not punishment, it's preventative. It's what they might go on and do from this point on that's the problem. Yes, it looks like by building this ziggurat, they are wanting to re-establish a divine, human, sacred space and a relationship, but it's on their terms and it's for their benefit. And then once the divine blessing is secured, they will become known as a prosperous, thriving civilization. But it's a bit like the Garden of Eden all over again. If you think back to uh, week, two and, uh, week two of this series, Genesis 2 and 3, having chosen to make themselves the source of order by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God had to banish Adam and Eve so that they might not eat from the tree of life because then they would live forever, causing greater and greater disorder. So again, at that point, it was a preventative punishment. So here in this passage, Genesis 9, we're seeing a similar thing. Humans are wanting to make themselves the source of divine human sacred space. Here, let's build a little pyramid. Come on, God, come into our temple that we've built for you, and then you can bless us. That's sort of the idea. We've got God. We're almost going to try and get him into a box, you know, put God in a box. And so this is their idea. This isn't God's. So God has to do something to prevent them from doing anything worse and certainly from keeping going along that track. So he confuses their languages so that they might not be united in pursuit of what will only result in further disorder. I think this is actually really, really important. We should definitely not see in this passage that the giving of languages is a curse. Languages are not a curse. Languages are seen as helping to prevent human disorder. Well, the Tower of Babel story ends with an etymological lesson, uh, which serves to underline the etiological purpose of the passage. Wow, I got all those words in then, didn't I? <laughs> Basically, it's just, here we go. Here's, here's where the words come from to explain what we're talking about in terms of languages. So in Akkadian, um, Babylim, which from obviously we get Babylon, um, the word means the gate of the gods. And this, of course, was symbolized by the ziggurats and the accompanying temple. The ziggurat was the gate of the gods. Here, God come down through this into this, sort of the gate of the gods. So that's Babylon or Babylim in Akkadian. However, the author doesn't speak Akkadian. The author is speaking Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word balal means confuse. So by sort of pushing those two together, we sort of get Babel. Sounds like confusion. So rather than the gate of the gods, it is a place of confusion. And so 
interestingly, just as they had wanted, the builders do make a name for themselves. But it is one that displays their potential for disorder, not their greatness. And then the passage ends with the people scattered over the face of the whole earth, just as the table of nations had previously described. But that's not the end of the story. Because Genesis 11 continues with a restatement of the most important branch of Noah's family tree, Shem's. Most important because the people writing this are the ones that are descended from Shem, so, you know, that's, that's their main focus. Um, only this time we breeze right past Peleg without any additional comment. Instead we come to Terah, Abraham's father. Oh, I'm saying Abraham, that's actually a later name. Um, in this passage, he's still known by his original name, which was Abram. So the chapter ends with the account of Terah's family line. There it is. Um, Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. Interestingly, Terah, Abram's dad, was heading to Canaan. And look, I'm not going to step on Adam's territory because next week the story will continue. Adam will continue, sorry, complete our series by looking at Abraham and the promises in Genesis 12. Because there's a reason that this passage, um, the Tower of Babel, leads directly to Abraham. Because the Tower of Babel represents the human initiative to re-establish sacred space and God's disapproval of that plan. But... God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. So this will represent God's initiative to re-establish sacred space. God is going to dwell in the midst of the people. Firstly, Abraham's family and then, of course, Israel uh, in the tabernacle and then eventually in a temple. But it's God's initiative. And that's not the end of the story either. Because 50 days after the resurrection of the Messiah, just over a week since Jesus' disciples saw him ascend into heaven, something truly remarkable happened. Many Jews had come into Jerusalem from all over the known world for the Feast of Pentecost. They did not raise a tower this time, although you could point to the raising of a certain cross a few weeks earlier as the ultimate in human disorder, when the, when the Lamb of God was killed for our redemption and to defeat the power of death three days later. But now, 
50 days after the resurrection, God descends again, this time in the person of the Holy Spirit, in the form of tongues of fire, to take up residence in a new sacred space, the people of the Messiah. And in a sign that a new phase in human existence has started, those tongues of fire, note that the word tongues in Greek means languages, the intentional disunity that comes from that multiplicity of human languages is reversed as everyone hears Peter and the disciples speaking the good news in their own languages. True unity is once again possible, even across language barriers. And then God's people are scattered across the earth by the Spirit to share the good news of God's kingdom. And we remember that day today because today is indeed Pentecost Sunday. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of languages. Thank you too for the gift of your Holy Spirit who came upon your people on the day of Pentecost all those years ago and who resides in we who believe in Jesus the Messiah. I pray that we will scatter from this place filled with your power and your compassion for the lost. May you use us to extend and strengthen your kingdom. Direct us towards people in desperate need of you. And in all things, may your name be glorified until we see you face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>